0: It's a real privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, the last time Mike invited me here it was uh, it was over six years ago. Mike, do you remember the date? Oh. You better, because it was your wedding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you pass. Okay, there you go. Um, yeah, now, this is this is the first time that I have preached at West Portal. No, this is not, this is, sorry, this is uh, the 13th, this is Forest Grove, okay. Got the right sermon, yes, okay. Um, This is the first time that I have preached here at Forest Grove, and it's a real privilege to be here. Um, Yeah, when Mike invited me, I didn't, I I was at his wedding, I was actually leading a choir for, uh, a surprise choir for Chelsea. And I've been back here a few times since then, but it's been to play violin, and so it's a privilege for me to be here. It's a privilege to be invited by Mike. Um, As he said, we first got to know each other through Bethany. And one of the wonderful things is that as you uh, walk alongside of people, that they start as students, they turn into friends and partners in kingdom ministry. And that has happened time and time again. And um, so with Mike, it's great. Next week, I happen to be preaching at the invitation of Kevin Cope out in Blaine Lake, and another one of yours here. Um, I run into... Bethany alumni from this church here everywhere I go, and it's wonderful to see how there are teachers and healthcare workers and social workers and tradespeople and engineers, people that are serving faithfully in many, many different ways in our community um, and around the world, really. And um, so I want to thank you for the community that you have provided for so many people, for the um, the foundation that you have laid, for uh, for so many people that we have been blessed to partner with at Bethany. And I know some of you are interested in what's going on at Bethany. I've been teaching there for 12 years. Um, technically, I'm not at Bethany right now because of th- there's a bit of a crisis, you know, that we've been going through. Um, and so um, all of us at Bethany are laid off this summer. And the we are we have received the word that, yes, there will be Bethany happening this fall. So that's very exciting. It's great. And we thank the many of you that have been praying, that have been giving uh, towards this. We encourage you to keep on praying, to keep on supporting the school, because um, it's, we, we still have a lot of work. We, it, we have a lot of work ahead of us. We know that um, three faculty members will not be coming back next year. All the rest of us that are there will be part-time, and so it's going to be a different kind of a year. But we are excited at what God is doing, and we are excited at the renewed sense of partnership that we have between Bethany and our constituency, of which you are a part. So thank you for your, uh, your, your support. Thank you for your prayers. Please keep praying. Please keep praying. Um, Mike asked me a couple of, I think it's been a couple of months already, to uh, speak on this passage, the first half of James chapter 2. And then Tuesday, he threw me a curveball. Got a little email that said, Randy, you know, I actually didn't get around to the last two verses of James chapter 1 in my sermon. Could you just add those into what you're going to do? Well, I think I caught that curveball, actually, Mike. And I'm actually very glad that you sent that note because as I went back and reread, the 1st reread James chapter 2, in the light of James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it made a whole lot more sense. And I actually am very glad that you asked me to put those together, because they belong together. So, these verses at the end of chapter 1, and if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to it, um, to have your Bible open, just so that you can uh, uh, keep track, follow along with what I'm saying here. But these are among the most important verses of this letter of James, these last two verses of chapter 1. They take us right to one of the core themes of this letter. And so I want to start by reading God's word from James chapter 1. If any, if any of you think that they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To care for orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep yourself unstained, undefiled from the world. Now, we are gathered here as a church. That's the word that we use to describe this kind of assembly. And the church is known as a religious institution, Indeed, it's our role, it's our calling to be religious and to become, if possible, even more religious. right? So we are here this morning because we want to be a religious church. James talks about religion. To get this right, to figure out what does it mean to be a religious church, we want to understand what he's saying. There's a, two words in these verses that we want to unpack. The first is the word "religion." Now, in our world, religion is a negative word. This word has gone sour. It's past its expiry date. We hear the word religion, and the world thinks that is so 1950s. In a lot of churches, the word religion is also negative. It's just as unwanted. And I'm guessing that some of you here might have had that same response when you saw that heading up there, How to be a religious church. Right? Do we really want to use that word? We might say, no, Christianity is a relationship. Christianity is not a religion. Now, I think that's actually a false dichotomy. Christianity is a relationship with the living Jesus. But if we don't like the word religion, I suspect that it's, it has more to do with how much we have become like the world out there, the culture around us. But neither of these reasons, the problem of the word religion in our culture, or the problem of the word religion among us, is why I think that this is a problematic translation, a problematic word to use in these verses in James. It's because the word religion in our world primarily means a comprehensive set of beliefs and practices. A comprehensive set. My religion is Christianity, or my religion is Buddhism, my religion is neo-pagan, whatever. And if we read James's verse with this in mind, then we can be led astray. Because then we can say, well, my religion is simply to take care of people of the orphan and widow, to take care of those who need help in our society. And if we do that, then we empty the word of any sense of Belief of conviction, of theology, of an allegiance to the living God of Israel. And that is definitely not what James is saying. The word James is using, it means service to God. It's usually applied to rituals. In the ancient world that James is writing out of, it would be applied to bringing a sacrifice, a literal sacrifice to a temple. An action that everyone in the ancient world of James and Jesus and Paul and so on whether they're Jewish or pagan, they would understand. It's an activity that you do to serve a particular God, to maintain a relationship with that God. James makes clear that the service he is talking about is done in submission to God the Father, the Holy One of Israel, and in a living relationship with Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James proclaims here directly and unequivocally that the purest service done in devotion to this God, this Lord, is to watch out for the weakest in our midst, to provide for the vulnerable, to submit our interests, we who are the powerful, our resources of time and energy, our possessions and our finances, to submit these to the needs of the powerless. James describes it in a positive way, first of all. He says, "...to care for orphans and widows in their distress." It's the same verb that Jesus uses when he says at the great judgment, I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And James uses the phrase widows and orphans to represent those who in that society lacked a provider. In the patriarchal world of the Jewish society at the time, to be without husband or father was to be without income, to be without protection. It was a precarious, a dangerous place to live. So, widows and orphans is biblical shorthand for the needy, the vulnerable of many sorts. James is not limiting himself to the literally fatherless. As we will see in a couple of verses, he uses the more generic word, the poor, to describe who he has in mind. So, that's his positive statement, first of all, okay, to care for, it's an act, it's an action. Then he describes a negative action, an abstaining sort of action, to keep yourself unstained by the world. Now, again, it's important to get what James means by the word world here. He does not mean everything out there like creation. Don't go out and enjoy the Rocky Mountains or Waska Sioux or whatever. No, of course not. That's not what he means. But we want to be clear. A bit closer is the John 3.16 meaning, where we read, God so loved the world. That means Everybody, all people, all people. For James, when he uses the word world, it means the human world that is sinful, rebellious, lost. It is everything built by human self-centeredness and greed. And we're going to hear lots about that in the coming chapters. It is habits and practices driven by self-centered power and the search for pleasure. That is what James means when he talks about the world. These habits and practices turn into structures, institutions, that enslave and ultimately will devour us. Were it not for the grace of God. I love, thank you Brad, wherever you are, um, for leading us in a time of worship focused on the grace of God. James uses the word unstained. Unstained, undefiled, is another translation. We are not called to avoid the world, to run and hide in a holy huddle. No, we are called to engage with the world, to enter it, to serve within it, while keeping our clothes clean. That means keeping our ways of thinking and living free from the moral and intellectual pollution that is out there. Not to absorb the pollution. So, to be a religious church, a religious community, in James's eyes, and we take his words as the word of God here, means simply that we will worship the Lord Jesus as the living Lord of glory, that we will care for the weak and the lowly among us, and that we will watch out for the deadly habits of a fallen world that blunt our ability to do both the worship and the caring. James wants to make sure that his audience understands what he is talking about, and so he gives a very concrete and a very uncomfortable example. This, dear brothers and sisters, is what it means to watch out for the vulnerable and to watch out for worldliness. He gives us a picture of prejudice in the church. And he plays with this word unstained, undefiled. It's a word that we normally use for clothing. And so he takes the example of clothing and he runs with it. Two types of clothing enter into the assembly. A rich robe, rags. We might say in walks a suit And some sweats. In James's world and in ours, clothing sends a message. This is true whether we like it or not. Sometimes we choose what message we want to proclaim. You know, we wear a certain brand name, logos, sports teams, and so on. We live in a culture where it's normal to be a billboard, right? Do you ever wonder how come they're not paying me to advertise for them? That's the world we live in. So, But even if that's not us, even if we don't have the billboard on us, our clothing sends messages. We know that. It's almost as much of our, a part of our body language as um, our facial expressions. In our world, clothing is a matter of personal expression. We can dress up or dress down however we want. Now, we are, this, uh, this series is called Spinning Gold from Straw, right? So I want to do a straw poll here. Okay, I decided today that I was going to wear a tie, and I was going to wear jeans. I want to know, if there's anybody else here wearing a tie, please stand up. I think there's a couple of you here. I, I'm putting you on the spot, but this is what a guest speaker can do, okay? Talk to Mike later. No, <laughs> you can talk to me later. But if you're wearing a tie, please, would you, would you stand up? We've got one. I thought there was another one in the stair here. No, one? You're the only one? I can't see with the, the blinders there. Okay, okay. Um, Okay, one tie. That's great. Thank you. I was going to say, and I I was guessing there would be nobody younger than me wearing a tie. Okay? Is there anybody wearing jeans? Stand up, please, if you're wearing jeans. It doesn't matter if they're long or short. Jeans? There's a few. Okay? Now I'm going to go out on a limb here. Anybody older than me wearing jeans? I was born in 62. Okay, a couple, that's great. Okay, I know, I'm sort of the tail end of the baby boom here. That's great. Okay, yeah, you can be seated. Okay, it doesn't really tell us anything except that clothing is a matter of personal choice, right? Because we've got a whole bunch of other different uh, styles here. We've got shorts, flip-flops, whatever. For us, clothing is personal choice, and we're at a time and a place where we are totally open to that. Okay? Okay. Um, I'm guessing two generations ago, it wouldn't have been quite that same, where you would have had quite that balance of ties versus jeans. It would have been a bit different two generations ago. In James's world, personal choice and personal expression are not the widespread values that they are for us here in North America. In James's world, in the first century, clothing is not simply a matter of social status. Or, sorry, clothing is. Simply a matter of social status. In other words, clothing and power go together. Status in that society is rigidly defined. It's hierarchical and it's marked by clothing. Think back even to the Old Testament, the well-known story of Joseph and his coat of many colors. That wasn't a fashion statement. That was a status statement. He was being singled out as higher than all the rest of his brothers. Now, this kind of connection between clothing and status or power, we do find this in our world. We do find this in our world. We are no strangers to this. If you have ever visited the courtroom downtown, you will know that this is a fantastic example, a test case of the connection between clothing and power. Let me describe, okay, a room there's a barrier halfway through. In the back of the room, you see lots of people wearing jeans, sweats, t-shirts, that sort of thing. Most of these people are nervous because they're the ones waiting for judgment. Okay, they're the ones that are having to present themselves. And then, in watch, walk a bunch of suits. They're the lawyers. Okay, Maybe, I don't know if there are some lawyers here that, I mean, that's you. Okay, you've got power. Okay, you walk through, you walk past that barrier into the front half of the room. The seats are much more comfortable there. Okay? These are people who have power. They know the system. They influence what happens in that room. Then there's the deputy sheriff. He's wearing a uniform, another expression of clothing. He's got a uniform and a gun. He's the guy that glares at you and points at your head if you're wearing a cap, which is also an issue of clothing. Your cap comes off. And then in walks the judge wearing what? A solemn black robe. Okay, all rise. The judge is seated in the very front of the room, up on a higher platform like this. And over everything else, at the back, is a picture that represents the ultimate authority in the room, Her Majesty, the Queen. And she's wearing a crown. What you wear, where you sit, your status, your power, it all connects. It all connects. This kind of setting of clothing and status and placement, that's the kind of world that James lived in where that was normal. That was the way things just are. Keep that kind of world in mind now as you listen to these verses from James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? For if a person with rings and fine clothes comes in into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine robes and say, Have a seat here, please. Well, to the one who is poor, you say, you can stand there, you can you could sit down here. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves with evil thoughts? Become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world? To be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. But you, you have dishonored this poor guy. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? In James's world, and in ours, nothing would be more natural than to seat the wealthy person in the place of honor and the poor person near the back. That's natural. And James's point is that the religious assembly, the gathering truly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, must be supernatural. It must be countercultural. To do anything less is to deny the Lord of glory. To do anything less is to deny God's preferred way of acting in the world. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? James knows that it is the sinful human desire for power and influence that leads us to welcome the wealthy. It is our pride that leads to prejudice. Now, the example that James gives is hypothetical. And in fact, I would say in our post-Christian world, walk-ins are less and less common and less and less of a problem. So maybe that's good news because if churches are as biased as James suggests here, it's good that we don't have people walking in and having to face this. Two people walk into a gathering, one rich, one poor, one oozing power and influence, the other one looking like, this guy might be a drain on my time. It may be a hypothetical situation, but the reality is never very far from us. We are faced with similar decisions every day when we visit with people in the church foyer, before and after a service. If you're trying to find your place in a new work crew in your summer job, in decisions on how to relate to a co-worker or a neighbor, in wondering who to connect with at a university class, we are always faced with a decision. Is this a needy person who will drain me or a person of influence who could help me? Is this person cool so I want to be seen with him or her or uncool? Can I stay in my comfort zone or must I enter a discomfort zone? Do I embrace status or service? We are tempted by power, whether that power comes by wealth, by the cool factor, by political advantage, or even by the latest trends and fads in church, or a hundred other ways. Jesus, or James here unmasks the dangers of power by painting a very black and white picture of the rich. There are times when, yes, we will need a more nuanced biblical understanding of wealth, but today, today it is James' stern and antiseptic preaching that offers itself as God's word to us. This is hard for us, though, because we are the rich. Sure, we can find 101 reasons why we're not. There's economic insecurity. I've got lots of debt. Um, You know, there's the rising cost of living. Everybody's better off than me. Um, Technically, I myself, I'm unemployed right now. But in the bigger picture, I'm rich. And... I'm guessing for almost everyone in this building right now, we are in the same category. Whether we're suits or jeans, high heels or flip-flops, we are in James's sights when he talks about the rich. And he has a low view of the rich. And so this is hard for us to hear. This is hard for me to hear. But listen to it, we must. Because this might be the way that we have become stained by the world. For James, the rich embody, in a particularly prominent way, the pridefulness of a fallen world. The rich can only be rich at the expense of the poor. James describes being dragged to court. Now this would be for the payment of debts in that society. We might ask questions about fair trade food items or sweatshop clothing. James specifically mentions that the rich blaspheme. They blaspheme this, the name that has been invoked over us, spoken over us. That is, the way that the rich talk about God or the gods, whether it's religious gods or gods of materialism and consumerism, the way they talk about this is an affront to Jesus in whose name James' spiritual flock was baptized and in whose name they gathered to worship. For us, we might ask questions about our speech. When we use the word holy, is it more often followed by God or cow? Is our speech more towards Alpha and Omega or OMG? Does our speech during the week prepare us for the language of gathered worship? Or does it devalue it? These are the kinds of differences between rich language and poor language, as far as James is concerned. It's the rich who blaspheme. So yes, James has a low view of the rich. He knows that apart from God, riches mean nothing. Worldly power is a facade. We might say, suits are nothing but a house of cards. Worldly power and influence cannot last because it is self-centered. It is prideful. It is a house, as Jesus, James' brother, says, it's a house built on shifting sand rather than on the solid rock of God's word. Mark Twain, that crusty American humorist, once said, Clothing makes the man. Nobody naked ever had much influence on society. Mr. Twain, I respectfully disagree. Once, a man was stripped and beaten and whipped, not for any crime of his own, except to challenge the powerful religious rulers of his day. Once a man hung naked on a cross. Once a man naked was wrapped in a shroud and laid in a tomb. And f- and from there that man, the God man, Jesus Christ, who dared to suffer and die naked for us, he has changed the world. Mr. Twain You are dead wrong. But even, even Twain's error does have an unwitting truth. Only when we take off our own garments of pride and self-centeredness and put on Christ can we discover the truth, the eschatological truth, that clothes do make the man. The spotless robe that makes us who we truly are as redeemed daughters and sons of God. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. James continues, verse 8. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay, I just want to make a brief comment about this section. Um, Trying to see how does it fit to what we've just heard here. James is talking about the law. And for him, as a Jewish Christian believer, this is his Jewish word for the word of God. And his point is this. God speaks with one voice and one authority. The more open-ended law of neighbor love, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, a law that begs for interpretation. That law is just as authoritative as the seemingly black and white law that says, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Breaking the neighbor love law is just as serious. So, the question... Who is my neighbor lies at the heart of James's argument here. Neighbor for James must include the poor. It must include the orphan and widow, the vulnerable in society. If we have a bias towards the wealthy, towards the influential and the cool, we are, as the phrase says, showing partiality. Now that's an English figure of speech. I, I, I had to find out where that actually comes from. What does it mean to be partial to something? I'm I'm partial to chocolate and coconut. Um, It's an English figure of speech, but there is an underlying truth that the text affirms here. If we show that kind of partiality, we have only a partial community. That means incomplete. In order to be whole, we need the poor and the vulnerable as part of us. Our community needs to welcome the powerless. It needs to include the invisible, or we are less than a religious church. We are less than a church devoted to the service of the living God. Now, this can start very simply. Talk to somebody you don't know during the church coffee time. It's a very simple, very simple beginning. Wouldn't it be awesome... If we took 10 minutes after church today to start a conversation that we have never welcomed before. We had a welcome time here, which is wonderful. Our, our home church does that as well. But I find that if you are a regular, you tend to sit at the same place. And so you tend to welcome more or less the same group of people. Wouldn't it be great if we took time to find somebody that we never welcomed before? Hi, you know, I've seen you here before. I've, I've seen you here for years, but I've forgotten your name. My name's Randy. You are. Wouldn't it be fantastic if next week, church started 15 minutes late because there was such a meeting of old-timers and new-timers. There was such a meeting of young and old, of east side and west side, of condo dwellers and suburbanites, of people from Lawson Heights and the letters. Such an exchange of names and smiles and handshakes that absolutely no one was left out. What a hallelujah of pure religion that would be. Even before the worship service, began. What if the invisible people started becoming visible in our midst? What if you've been one of the people that have been here for a while but have felt kind of lonely, have felt kind of invisible, and all of a sudden you got that smile, that handshake, that conversation? Wouldn't that be awesome? What if the invisible people started coming out from Saskatoon Imagine the holy buzz if Saskatoon's immigrants, refugees, the homeless, found out that they could come here and be welcomed like that. What if our Aboriginal neighbours showed up and discovered that they too were welcomed and honoured as neighbours? What if God himself looked down and smiled? I've been waiting for this. Religion, pure and undefiled everywhere we look. Isn't that awesome? How awesome is that? Okay, bringing this to a bit of a conclusion here. James is a totally practical letter. He hits hard on what we do and what we should do. This is what we call ethics. Underlying his ethic of welcoming the poor, however, is a theology, a view of God. And this is where I want to conclude. What does James' preaching tell us about God and the good news of Jesus? James draws our gaze backward. He roots our actions of welcome in the prior character and activity of God, specifically God as proclaimed in the Old Testament story of Israel. Students are wondering here, when's he going to get to Genesis and Exodus, right? It always ends up back at Genesis and Exodus. Verse 5 gives us a snapshot of how God works. It's a pattern that we see time and again in the Scriptures. Perhaps nowhere more so than in the story of Abraham. And when we look at this verse, we see that it's peppered with key words from the story of Abraham. Chosen, inheritance, promise. The kingdom is the land. These are cues that would have made, uh, would have spoken volumes to James's Jewish Christian listeners. Do these words speak to us? God is the God of the unlikely, choosing an old and childless couple, promising them divine blessings. God is the God who brings life out of death, as he did for Abraham and Sarah. He is still a God who brings life out of death. Similarly, James keeps on mentioning the law. Now, the law is not an abstract set of rules. The law is embedded in the story of God's rescue of his people. Slaves in Egypt and bringing them to freedom. And so he calls it the royal law because he says, I will make you a royal priesthood. He calls it the law of liberty or freedom. Both of these cues point to this defining story of the Old Testament. God's rescue of the powerless from the economic and military might of Pharaoh. If you want to know what God thinks of worldly power... The worldly power that we are to keep unstained from. And how God treats the powerless. Look at the story of the Exodus. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Look back at the Exodus. Every time you have the choice between welcoming the weak or pursuing power, embracing service or trying to raise up your status. On what side of the equation will you find God? Finally, James aims us forward. So speak and so act in a way that shows you are about to be judged by the law that brings freedom. For judgment will be without mercy to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James' words are once again remarkably close to those of his brother and Lord. For if, you have forgi- for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, what? Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Simply put, welcome others with mercy. Because that is how God has welcomed us and how God will ultimately and eschatologically welcome us. This is the sermon in a nutshell. It's all about God's mercy. Mercy welcomes the neighbor. Mercy especially welcomes the poor. James doesn't develop any complicated atonement theories about how God did this? Neither does he mention Jesus at this point, but he does know that Jesus will someday return as judge. Jesus is the one who is our judge. And he proclaims that mercy will have the solid last word. And that's enough for me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James startles us with these final words, and I want to startle you with an image. Now, whether or not you've been watching any World Cup, you know exactly what is going on in these pictures here. Somebody has just scored. And what do you instinctively do at that moment? Whether you're the player or whether that's your team. You shout, you yell, you, you slap your chest, you dance, you fist pump. It's total adrenaline. Okay, you can see that. And some of you might be looking forward to this this afternoon. This is the unexpected word. It's a strange word that James uses right here. It means to boast over something. It means to shout down your opponent. And we know what that gesture means when it's on the soccer pitch. It's what winners do to losers. I might even paraphrase. Mercy kicks butt over just judgment. That is the force of the word that James uses right here. Now, maybe that's a bit theologically loose. We could talk about how we put this together. But James's final word to this to us is this. Mercy is awesome. Mercy is powerful. But it's God's power, not ours. It's God's power, not the world's. Mercy is the power of a lion hiding behind a lamb. Mercy is the power of the Creator, hanging naked on a tree for the forgiveness of sins. And mercy is the power of the risen Lord, welcoming us so that we can welcome others. He has shown mercy on us. How will we let him show mercy to others today?